This is The Guardian. Today, the huge problem facing the tiny, miraculous worlds that make life on Earth possible. Out in the Danish countryside, it's a hot day and on a quiet stretch of road, a scientist gets ready for an experiment. So what he does is he gets in his car, which is a kind of beat-up old 1960s Ford Anglia. Gets to about 60 kilometres an hour. And at that point, he's in research conditions. With bemused farmers watching from their fields, the man drives down the same stretch of road at the same speed, again and again and again. He's been doing that every summer since 1997. What Oliver Millman, Guardian US's environment correspondent, is describing isn't a man conducting a 25-year experiment on his car's reliability or efficiency. Instead, the scientist, Anders Moller, has his eyes fixed forward, watching and listening for what might hit the glass just inches from his face. Sometimes they're quite heavy hits, a big bumblebee will hit the windscreen. Sometimes it's quite uh, faint hits of mosquitoes or other insects. And the reason he's been doing that is to see how many smash against the windscreen of his car. Moller pulls over and climbs out to inspect the smashed guts of bugs on glass, methodically logging the numbers of insects he sees. Something he repeats every year until he's got 25 years of data. And what it reveals shocks him. There's been a 97% decrease in insects that have hit his screen beyond anything that anybody really expected. I mean, that's incredible. It's like a, it's like a wipeout from however many insects to 97% fewer over not that much time. Like we're talking a couple of decades. Yeah, and this is an outlier in any kind of way. And it's really kind of indication of the unfolding insect crisis that is engulfing much of the world now. With so much going on in the world right now, all the destruction we can see, it's easy to overlook the destruction we can't. There was a UN report that came out in 2019 that warned that half a million insect species face extinction by the middle point of this century, which is an enormous loss. But the massive decline in insect populations isn't just bad for bees, ants, beetles, and the other tiny creatures that are vanishing quickly. It's a huge problem for humans too. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the insects that keep nature humming and what their demise means for the rest of us. Oliver Millman, alongside reporting on the environment for The Guardian, you've also recently written a book on the rapid decline of insect populations. And 
This is such a fascinating, surprising world that you've immersed yourself in these past few years. So before we get onto the true scale of this problem and the possible solutions to it, I really want to know what drew you to writing about insects in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of years ago, if somebody said your first book would be on the insect crisis, I, I don't think I'd quite believe them. I spent a lot of time writing about those big kind of charismatic creatures that are imperiled in our world. But the more I kind of looked into it, the more it became clear that this was perhaps the, the great biodiversity lost story of our time. And introduce me to some of these insects that you came across in this journey that you've been on, the ones that have really stayed with you. I mean, there's so many of them and you could spend days just learning about new insects and the incredible things they do. I mean, there's a there's a type of water beetle that can survive being eaten by a frog by swimming through its stomach and crawling out of its bottom. There's a <laughs> bumblebee that can fly at 5,000 metres above sea level, which is about about the height of Mount Kilimanjaro. There's uh, uh, an ant that can snap its jaws at 200 miles an hour. There's a caterpillar that generates its own antifreeze. I mean, the, there's this endless kind of otherworldly, alien-like abilities of these creatures. I mean, we've we've manicured and ordered our surroundings to the extent that we think that it looks pretty in a lot of respects. If you have a kind of carpet of lawn, it kind of looks to a lot of people's eyes beautiful and of nature. But in reality, these these environments should be thrumming with insects. It should be alive. And it's only when you go into a piece of grassland, a wildflower meadow, somewhere like that, that's been untouched, that hasn't been um, altered in this way, that you actually see how it was and arguably should be. It should be somewhere where insects are all over the place. You can see them, you can hear them, they're kind of bashing against your legs, they're kind of bumping into your face as you're walking through, they, they're pollinating the plants. The place feels alive. And, and I think the danger is we're stripping the life away from our surroundings. So the Danish scientist Anders Moller, who ran that experiment with his car, found out the number of insects in that particular corner of Denmark had just fallen off a cliff. Did he come to a conclusion about what had led to that fall? He kind of looked to the kind of usual suspects. So the first is habitat loss. Farmland in Denmark, much like farmland everywhere, used to be either forests or untamed grasslands. And we've essentially turned those landscapes into monocultural croplands. The second thing we've done is spray chemicals everywhere. We spray chemicals all over our gardens. We spray chemicals all over our fields. Uh, that has proved deadly to, to many species of insects. We now grow these enormous monocultures of crops that are treated over and over again with pesticides. On average, each field is treated about 17 times a year. So it's 17 different pesticide applications, which is a figure that's twice as high as it was just 25 years ago. And the third thing, and the growing factor in this is climate change. And that has proved disastrous for insects in Denmark, it has everywhere. It's hard to pick out one of those reasons for the decline seen here, but it's likely one of those, or many of those factors are at play. It's happened elsewhere too. In France, there's been a big drop in insects. In the UK, you've seen British butterfly numbers have nearly halved in the past 50 years. More than 20 species of bees and wasps have completely vanished since uh, the Victorian era. These are broad declines in many places. 
It's incredible that, you know, even in the course of my lifetime, this can have been happening around us, like entire insect species, these communities just collapsing. It's it's hard to comprehend. If this die-off continues, what does it mean for the natural landscape, for the world that we live in? Yeah, well, I mean, insects essentially kind of hold aloft much of life as we know it. They replenish the soils, they help plants grow, they provide food for other animals, quite crucially. So there's a growing list of birds now that uh, are on the decline, warblers, swallows, uh, birds that like to eat insects. I mean, selfishly, there is the concern about food pollination, about three quarters of the world's flowering plants and about a third of our food crops depend on pollination, tomatoes, onions, things like that, even chocolate. The plant is pollinated by a small midge. So you start losing those seemingly small and insignificant creatures and you lose the world's chocolate supply. And insects won't all vanish, so we won't lose these things, but they risk becoming rarer in certain parts of the world and therefore more expensive. And that burden is likely to fall on heaviest on developing countries, countries where your food source is the fields around you. So there's a, a big impact that cascades through the food chain and there's a, a broader environmental and ecological disaster that kind of starts spinning out of control once you start losing insects because they're so foundational to the way our planet operates. And you painted this picture for me of what it's like to walk through parts of the environment that haven't been so affected by this. And it's loud and, you know, there's lots of things running into you and it's kind of a hectic place. But what would a walk through a park look like in, in a world where the insect populations have collapsed in the way that they have? It'd be quite a kind of grim place and, and not one you'd want to go to. I mean, 90% of wildflowers are pollinated by insects in terms of their losses. You wouldn't see those flowers around. There'd be very little colour in the landscape. You probably wouldn't see or hear many birds around uh, because their food source had just disappeared. You'd probably see quite a lot of um, faeces and maybe some dead animals around because insects are the prime disposers of the waste in our society. I mean, one scientist said that without insects, we'd basically be... um, living in a in a world of poo and our dead uncle Jeremy would be floating past us because these <laughs> things that we um, these things that we expect will be kind of broken down and disappear from our lives because we found them, find them revolting would suddenly be uh, all around us because all the beetles and other creatures that usually do that work would be gone. I want to pick up on an interesting point here because it feels like it's important. You're not saying that we're going to live in a world without insects, but what we're doing is actually changing the composition of the insect population. It'll be different insects that become dominant because of the way we live and work and use land. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they are the great survivors. They survived five mass extinctions in the past. And because there are so many species, it's not like every single one is going to be wiped out. But the composition is going to change. I mean... We are simplifying the world around us, and that's going to cause winners and losers. Creatures that are well adapted to us, like cockroaches, certain species of cockroaches, will do well because we are creating conditions that are favourable for them. The mix we're going to end up with, I don't think we're going to like very much. Mm, No more chocolate, but a lot more cockroaches. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> essentially that, yes. God, what a, what a bleak future. Um, one subject of insect that draws a lot of attention is that of the bee. Parliament Square was where beekeepers chose to make their voices heard. Save our bees! Save our bees! 600,000 people have signed a petition to ban farmers from using neonectinoid pesticides they believe damage bees. If the bees start the what bees... problems are we facing trying to rescue bee populations? Yeah, so, I mean, I think when most people think about bees, they think about a creature with kind of yellow and black striped bodies that buzz around and make honey. I mean, the real crisis is really unfolding in the wild bee population, which is thousands and thousands of other species around the world. And they do not have the protection of beekeepers. They nest in the ground. Some of them can burrow underground, minor bees. Some of them live in tree hollows and other places. In countries such as the UK, they provide most of the pollination, and yet they are suffering badly from pesticide use, from habitat loss. They're being cut off in terms of their connections between populations. So I think that's a real area that people will have to start shifting their expectations and their thinking from, from just from honeybees to this kind of whole world of other bees around us. It's interesting that most of us have lived through this collapse of insect populations, but haven't really known about it until recently. And it you know, falls to scientists running these kinds of left field experiments to point it out. Do you think in part that's because, you know, we don't regard insects in the same way we do like dogs and cats, that insects are kind of disadvantaged by the fact that so much of what they do, so much of what makes them impressive happens outside of our view? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's quite extraordinary to think about it, isn't it? There's about a million known insect species, but how many of those do we think about at all? Or how many of those do we think about fondly? It's taken months of painstaking research, but the results are finally in. People around the world hate wasps. But, say the team behind the research, wasps aren't actually mean, just misunderstood. Wasps are a great example in that they're crucial for pollination. They eat a lot of the pests that actually attack our crops, so they're actually doing us a favour. Uh, and yet we revile them, we hate them, we think that they're going to uh, invade our picnics and sting us. We think that they are a menace, uh, and most a lot of people would like the world rid of wasps. Well, okay, let's take wasps. If they were all to vanish overnight, what would happen? I think you'd see a... A big drop in the production of certain foods, which would then lead to price increases of, of those foods. In some parts of the world, you'd see malnutrition and hunger because of the lack of pollination of those foods. It seems like what we have at the moment is really just a glimpse at what's happening in, in the insect world. Like this is not as easy to measure as the population of tigers or rhinos, for example. I mean, how comprehensively do you think we understand this problem? I think we've been given a glimpse of it. I don't think we've, we've got the full picture. We can't know exactly what's happening. In some places, some insects are on the increase due to changes we're, we are making to the world. But like you say, it's, it's harder to, to count them than, than it is with uh, rhinos or orangutans or other such creatures. I mean, what, one scientist I spoke to said, well, you've got one scientist studying 50,000 types of insects and 50,000 scientists studying one type of monkey. I mean, I think that's the equation that unfortunately we're left with in that certain creatures attract certain 
amounts of attention. They attract funding for research. They attract the best scientists. Certainly, when we're thinking about insect science, it's a underfunded, under-resourced and undermanned area of our scientific understanding. Given the difficulties of actually determining what's really happening in the insect world, are there scientists out there who say, don't panic, this evidence that we have isn't yet conclusive? So there, there has been some caution laid out on this. And one worry is that if an insect kind of apocalypse is declared now, that won't really take it seriously if it turns out to be not quite as bad as we first feared. There's the very typical scientific reticence to to call an emergency. You've seen this kind of play out around climate change as well. I'd, I'd say another parallel with climate change, unfortunately, is we didn't need perfect information on climate change to act on it 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And we may be well in that stage with the insect crisis, the point where you know everything about what's going on with insects around the world, maybe the point where it's a little too late to do anything about it. Coming up, could robot bees really be the answer to the insect crisis? Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. There are people out there trying to think of solutions to these problems that you're laying out, including in the case of honeybees, the potential to replace them or at least replace their function with with robots. Is that something that we should be hopeful about? And what are some other solutions people are putting forward to try to deal with this crisis? Yeah, I mean, there's been work underway in several places. We are constructing robots the size of insects. Robots made out of entirely soft materials. Including Harvard University in the US to create these robotic bees. We envision that 20 or so years down the road when these things actually exist, they could be quite useful for applications where you wouldn't want to put a human or an animal. Hazardous environment exploration, search and rescue, space exploration, assisted agriculture. Other places are creating larger drones that can go and pollinate apple orchards, for example, in a kind of um, hovering above them. I think the kind of trouble with these kind of experiments is that, I mean, insects have been around for kind of 400 million years or so. Um, they've had a long time to get very good at what they do, and they do so in mass numbers. I mean, a uh, honeybee hive has 20 to 80,000 bees in it. And the idea that you're going to create that many robots and that they're going to be able to do the job as well as a bee is, I think, quite fanciful. When the cherry blossoms are out, it's time for Wu Qingyou to start work on something that's normally taken care of by nature. The other alternative, of course, if you're lacking pollinators, is to get people to do it. The farmer pollinates her trees by hand. It should be bees doing this work. But here in the Hanyuan region of southwest China, there simply aren't enough of the beneficial insects to go around. I mean, they have 
armies of workers who fan out into the fields with sticks with feathers on them uh, to go and pollinate um, the buds of plants. I think we need to uh, focus on protecting pollinators rather than think that there's a technological solution for it. Yeah, it's a strange idea about progress that we've gotten as far as being able to create robots that can mimic what bees are doing, but not to be able to stop the activity that's actually killing the bees in the first place. Yeah, and I guess that's yet another parallel with climate change in that we've got ourselves into this kind of terrible mess. And yet there's quite a lot of people who say, well, you know, if we can just invent and deploy these machines that suck carbon from the air or some other kind of technological fix, then maybe we can get our way out of climate change without doing the hard work of actually cutting emissions, providing a just transition for those working in fossil fuels and so on. We kind of tend to look for shortcuts, I feel. Yeah, right. If the robots aren't the solution, I mean, what is? Is there anything happening out there that gives you some hope we can reverse the declines that we're seeing? Yes, there are. I I mean, awareness has been building, which I think is one thing which is always important at the start of any kind of process of change. There is a lot of good work being done around farming practices, moving towards regenerative farming, whereby um, fewer pesticides are used. So it's not just single monocultures of corn or soy or wheat, but a kind of diverse farm that actually lets nature back in again. There's been pesticide bans, uh, neonicotinoids, which is perhaps some of the worst insecticides for insects. And there's um, there's a kind of rethink about insects in our lives in general, I feel. If you think about the coronavirus pandemic and how we just let things go a little bit in terms of, you know, the grass wasn't cut as much by local authorities and so on. You saw life springing back. And this idea of letting go a bit, I think, is, is hopefully one that we can, um, we can hold on to a bit. Oliver, has the process of writing this book, of immersing yourself in these tiny kingdoms that run the world, as you describe them, changed the way you look at that same world, or at least your small corner of it? Yeah, it certainly has. It certainly made me aware of, of the insects around me, to not just see them as kind of annoying pests, to understand the kind of pyramid of life that they essentially kind of hold aloft on their tiny shoulders. It's given me kind of great admiration for them. And from all the research that you did, are there any moments that really stay with you? Yeah, so... I wanted to look at the mass migration of monarch butterflies from the US and Canada to Mexico. So I went to central Mexico and went to the mountains there. And I sat on a spot, there was a grove of trees, and um, millions of these butterflies just kind of rose up. To really hear the sound of millions flying, we'll wait for what we call a waterfall. It's like this. And flew around and then descended on the trees again. It was like waves of these orange and black creatures just flying around me. And it was just this dreamlike moment. It was absolutely gorgeous. And the idea that that could disappear from our world in just a few decades felt like a terrible tragedy to me. And I felt that it really is important that we can keep these wonders of nature around us.
Oliver, thanks so much. No worries. Thanks so much. That was Oliver Millman, Guardian US's environment correspondent, and his book titled The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World is available now. And you can, of course, read all his environment reporting at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser and Rose DeLarabiti. It was execed by Elizabeth Casson. Sound design was by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.